So shortly after Melinda and I graduated from college, we moved to Birmingham, Alabama. And despite the fact that Melinda's mother and father are originally from Alabama, we really didn't have any ties to the state. Melinda's home was Germany, where she'd been raised from the age of three until she came back to the United States, particularly to Arkansas, to go to school. And my home was Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, where we get water from Pure Water, Pure Love, and where I had also been raised until I came back to the United States uh, to go to school, also in Arkansas. No coincidence there. So we, we, neither of us really had any deep ties to the state of Alabama. However, we quickly fell in love with both the place and its people. Alabamians are warm, welcoming, and a very laid-back people who are passionate about few things, food, family, and the great outdoors. There is little that gets Southerners wild and crazy except for college football. We had no idea how big college football was to one's identity as an Alabamian. When we arrived, the first thing that we were asked after we gave our names was the question, so who you fur? Fur. With fur, not a reference to animal hide, but rather an inquiry as, as to who do you support? As in, who, who do you like, for and against, pro and con, like, don't like. And at first, besides not understanding the term being asked due to the southern accents, use of that language, we couldn't figure out what was being referenced. Was it a politician, some social action group? Was it possibly the latest contestant on The Voice or Dancing with the Stars? Well, as you can see, it turns out to be the who you fur had to do with football. And the only two teams that mattered in the world of the SEC, of the NCAA, Alabama Roll Tide, and Auburn War Eagle, for those that are fans. Now, Alabama Roll Tide and Auburn War Eagle are the two largest universities, as you know, in the state. They have a rivalry that is unmatched, in my opinion, in college football. And I say that because the intensity of this matchup is shared by everyone in the entire state, at least almost, at least almost while we were there, for reasons I can't explain. And it's not that I won't, it's just I just don't know why. I could never settle on a side of this state-splitting contest. I didn't care to support Alabama Roll Tide. And Auburn's fans, War Eagle, were the worst fans ever. I mean, they were the most superstitious people I've ever seen. Melinda and I went to watch the uh, Iron Bowl, which I'm sure you know is the big game, big rivalry. And I recall one of the guys was headed to get snacks when all of a sudden Auburn scored. And that poor man was made to then stand in the stairwell until the tide, pun intended, turned because for some reason his friends believed that his movements had in some way affected the game. It was bizarre. Now, I know that much of that behavior was done in jest. However, what was taken very seriously, deadly seriously, was your allegiance. You had to have a team. You couldn't sit on the fence. You could couldn't waver, and you most certainly could not ever change teams. I mean, if there was an unforgivable sin in the state of Alabama, it was being a traitor. And if that happened, well, then you'd best just leave, move, move someplace else. That's not what brought us to the state of Maryland. And guys, football in Alabama, is, it required exclusive support for your team. And friends, this is, a, this is a principle that I believe we often miss in our faith. Why we can be so determined, so convicted when it comes to sports or to brands, even to family, but waver 
when it comes to faith, is a failing that we need to be reminded of because the God whose salvation is so very great demands total commitment. And this was the lesson learned by Israel's fifth judge and the subject of our text today, who is Gideon. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Gideon, or Judges, chapter 6, and find verse 1. Judges 6, verse 1. Last week, if you were with us, we concluded our look at Deborah and Barak's defeat of Sisera, and today we turn our attention to Gideon. So Judges 6, beginning in verse 1, where our author writes, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And let me pause there to make a first point for this morning, which is God's judgment. God's judgment. The first six verses here in our chapter provide what is to this point in the book the most comprehensive description of God's displeasure and Israel's distress. Previously, we've been informed of Israel's sin and Yahweh's wrath in no more than those words. However, here, chapter 6, our author fills a full five verses with details of Israel's suffering under the thumb of a new oppressor, Midian. For seven years, we're told, Midianites, the semi-nomadic people, along with the desert-dwelling descendants of Esau, Amalekites, and additional eastern peoples, would raid the promised land at opportune times and to devastating effect, waiting until Israel's freshly seeded crops had begun to sprout. These enemies would then cross the Jordan, bringing with them their families and their livestock, and then they would settle in Canaan until the fields were ready to harvest, sending out these raiding parties over the, over the times to terrorize God's people who sought shelter, we're told, in mountain clefts, caves, and in other strongholds. And so, so consistent was Midian and their allies in their seasonal locust like infestation that Israel simply stocked their hideaways and they kept their to-go bags packed so at the first sign of Midian's hordes on the horizon they could just skedaddle. But church, what I find so telling here is how our author conveys Israel's circumstances. It's the, it's the fact that the, their cry for help comes at the very end of this description, doesn't it? It's as if the last thing Israel did after they fled the first time and then the second time and then the third time, at which point they realized that this was becoming a pretty regular thing. So they simply prepared their hideouts, hoping they wouldn't have to use them, but wanting to be ready nonetheless. And then for seven full years, they fled in fear and in anger to these shelters where they then watched their land be trashed, powerless to do anything to stop it. And it was only then seven years later, that they cry out to the Lord for help. And guys, how often, isn't this how we often respond to hardship? And we begin by reacting and attempting to fix problems ourselves, and then we find it's too complicated, and so we seek alternate solutions. But still those, 
that are within our power to control, right? And then when even these don't work, we concede and we simply survive. We find ways to live around our problems. And we can call it living because life continues to move forward, but the living that we experience, I believe, is best described by the term that our author employs here in verse 6 to describe Israel, impoverished. In the original language of the New Old Testament here, this word literally meant to become small, or to make little. And therefore, it describes more than just Israel's economic situation. It also describes their emotional state. The people were paralyzed before Midian. The life that they had was no longer worth living. And so finally, we're told, they cried out to the Lord for help. Have you cried out to the Lord for help? Do you find yourself maybe this morning in a difficult situation in some ways like that of Israel? Have you tried to fix it yourself to no avail? Have you been living a life that might be best described as impoverished and not at all marked by the fullness of joy promised by Christ in which his peace that passes all understanding changes your life? Friends, I pray that if your life in any way resembles the Israelites at this point in our story, that you would cry out to the Lord. Call out to Him, but just not as Israel did. For if you've been with us, we've seen previously that this call for aid reflects no sense of remorse or no, no sign or desire of repentance. The cry that our author captures here, verse 6, is simply a sound of pain. I mean, Israel was in agony because of their circumstances. And so, like somebody drowning in the ocean or whose arm's been twisted behind their back, all that this reflects is a cry for help. Now, at this point, we might concede that, it, well, at least they cried out to the Lord, right? But don't miss the fact that this in no way obligated the Lord to act on their behalf. It's a truth that I believe we see revealed as our story continues. So let's keep reading from verse 7 now. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. So Israel cried out for relief, and what they received was a reminder so we've seen God's judgment. Here's God's reminder. Israel sends up this distress signal, so to speak. And rather than the warrior that they were hoping for, God sends his word through his prophet. This would be like having your house heat go up this week. And with all the cold that's forecast, calling shore comfort, hoping they send you a technician. And then who rings the doorbell but me? <laughs> I can tell you about how severe your problem is and how bad it's going to be for you should you not fix the problem, but I'm not going to be able to do a thing about it. I can simply talk to you about it. And that's what Israel received. God sent them a proclaimer of his word who addressed three issues. First, he reminds them of God's grace. Verse 8, Yahweh directed his people's attention to their deliverance from Egypt, a work that they did nothing to procure or to secure. As he says, I brought you up. I snatched you from the power of Egypt. I drove them before you. I said to you, in every action that the prophet proclaims, God is primary. He's the subject. Israel is nothing evermore 
than the object. So the first thing God did was remind his people of his grace. The second, he repeated his stipulations. He repeated his stipulations. In verse 10, Yahweh declared, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. So God's demands had not changed. But as we'll see in just a moment, his people had, hadn't they? A generation had grown up who who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And therefore, they didn't know what God's expectations were, which is why he reiterated them. And then he leveled his accusation against them. The third thing that our prophet addressed. In the second half there of verse 10, the Lord condemned Israel saying, but you have not listened to me. And church, right here, let me just draw your attention to a couple concerns that I believe the prophet raises. Israel is clearly suffering because of their disobedience. However, it's likely, actually, it's certain, as we'll see in just a moment, that many had no idea why their circumstances were as they were. And so here's the point. Israel's ignorance did not, indeed, it could not justify their sinful actions. Sin is sin. And God doesn't change. Therefore, his word, his law, his precepts, his promises remain the same forever. And so those who would want to argue, but that's, that's just not fair, Andrew. I mean, how could God hold Israel to, in, to, to expectations of which they were ignorant? You are presupposing Israel's innocence, aren't you? You're assuming that, as many do, like an infant, a child, a baby, Israel was innocent and incapable of sin until they knew what the rules were, right? And this is the logical conclusion when ignorance excuses guilt. And if this were true, then we couldn't judge anyone unless they knew the rules. And if this were so, then once you, you knew them and you broke them, and then only then you'd be condemned. The worst, the most, the most unloving thing that a parent could do would be to teach their children the rules. Because once you know them, you're culpable when you break them. And along these lines, if we carry this reasoning further, then why would we ever share the gospel with anybody? Surely the best scenario would be to allow those ignorant of God's justice to remain so and thereby receive a free pass into glory, right? And can you just see how, how foolish such reasoning is? And yet, sadly, there are so many who cling stubbornly to this view, even today. The prophet destroys this falsehood as he declares Israel's guilt. And in so doing, he insists, don't miss this, he insists on sin's significance. Because if failing to obey God wasn't that big of a deal, then surely, surely the prophet would have spoken to some other matter. If the people's significant problem was ignorance, then surely they needed an education. Maybe, maybe instruction in military tactics or how to improve their land's defense. But the prophet doesn't address anything but Israel's failure to obey God's word. And friends, this remains our biggest issue. The cause of our lives' impoverishment isn't political or economic or social or material. It's spiritual. Sin is the root of our suffering, which is why sin is the subject of the gospel. God's promise of salvation doesn't direct us to improve our time management declutter our lives or become better leaders or find strength in community. The gospel directs us to repent of our sin and believe in Jesus. And let's not miss God's kindness here conveyed to his people in his prophet's message. This was one 
commentator notes, one of the kindest things God does for us is to bring us under the criticism of His Word. Why? To expose the reasons for our helplessness and misery. And He does this by the preaching counsel and reading of His Word. Guys, God gives His people a reminder. A kind reminder. But don't miss, it's also a gracious reminder. Because you notice how abruptly it ends there? We would expect verse 10 there to be followed by that dreaded therefore, right? I mean, as we see this throughout the Old Testament, you give an example in Jeremiah chapter 11, the prophet gives a very similar threefold accusation against Judah and Jerusalem, which is followed, verse 11, by therefore. This is what the Lord says. I will bring on them a disaster. They cannot escape. Here, in our text, Israel's failed. They've been weighed, measured, found wanting. And all that remains is for God in His justice to pass sentence. And yet, He doesn't. The prophet's sermon just ends. When He ought to destroy us, He delivers yet again. When He has every right to shatter, He nevertheless prepares to save. Guys, this is God's grace. The God who is slow to anger and abounding in love, according to Exodus 34.6. The God who loathes to strike His people, according to Lamentations 3.33. Even when justice demands it. Do you know Him? So we've seen God's judgment, heard His reminder. Now, let's consider God's pledge. God's pledge, as we read from verse 11. And our author continues. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak, at Aphra, that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. So following God's prophet's sermon's ending, abrupt ending, we meet the hero of our story, only he isn't a hero, is he? The angel of the Lord arrives in Canaan, and he takes his seat under the oak tree in Aphra, from which he observes this mighty warrior threshing wheat in a wine press. And as I'm sure most all of us know, the process of threshing wheat was marked by the throwing of that cut wheat up into the air, which then allowed the wind to blow away the lighter chaff, allowing the heavier grain then to fall to the ground. So in order to do this well, you needed to be exposed to the wind. However, Gideon here is hiding in a hole. He's so accustomed to the practices of Midian that he's just simply found an alternate, albeit less effective, way to gather his grain. So as we noted, Gideon is one who's accepted life's limitations. He doesn't like them, but neither does he understand them. And this is the point that I mentioned earlier. The angel directs Gideon to the truth of the Lord's presence. The, the reference to him being there, a mighty warrior, was most likely intended as a compliment. 
At which point Gideon responds with this very revealing question. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? If the Lord is with us, why has this happened to us? So in Gideon's theology, and yes, the man is a theologian, as are we all, because he clearly has a concept of Yahweh, doesn't he? Who he is, what he's done. In Gideon's theology, the people's present suffering was all God's fault. Ironically, he was right. Yahweh had abandoned Israel. Tragically, Gideon's question reveals he has no idea why. And friends, I believe that there are many who share Gideon's confusion today. It's a problem resulting from and compounded by the many sermons that are being preached in pulpits across our country which fixate on God's love at the expense of personal holiness. And in these teachings of the American church, God's biggest concern is supposedly with human happiness. He desires that we all love one another, that we we prioritize working together to create an environment, a community in which we all, we all accept one another for who we have defined ourselves to be. And as seen from this perspective, God's call in the Old Testament for His people's absolute holiness and adherence to His truth must be subjected to culture's sliding scale of veracity as determined by the individual. In other words, in, in our postmodernism, we decide what's true and what God's Word intends to communicate in order that we might be happy. But friends, the problem with these lies is they don't satisfy. They didn't satisfy Gideon, and they won't satisfy us. What will satisfy, and the only thing that will, is that promised by the Lord's angel, His presence. Twice here in our text, the angel declares, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Following the first announcement, coupled with God's order to save Israel, Gideon objects. And his response reveals both his cynicism as he provides the angel with these two reasons that he can't possibly do what's being asked. For one, his family is so insignificant that no one would take him seriously. And in his family, he's the least. So it reveals his cynicism, but Gideon's response also reveals his ignorance of how Yahweh works. In God's economy, it doesn't matter what your social standing is. All that matters is that he calls you. And that's revealed by the angel's second statement, the reminder, I will be with you. It's a statement which, as one theologian notes, has, has a history, and I love this. He says it seems to be Yahweh's trump card. A trump card placed down in front of either unwilling or hesitant servants. If you think about it, in, in the face of Moses' resistance, Yahweh insisted, but I will be with you in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 12. And then after Moses' death had apparently left this giant gaping hole in Israel's leadership, Yahweh reassured Joshua with, as I have been with Moses, I will be with you, his presence. Joshua 1 verse 5. In all their dilemmas, quandaries, crises, this has ever been the word of the covenant God to his servants. And church, this promise of God's presence extended to Gideon is ours as well. In his familiar final words to his disciples, Christ Jesus declared, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, what? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, what? I am with you always to the very end of the age. Have you, have you ever responded to God's command to go make disciples like Gideon? 
you ever responded to God's call to share your faith like Gideon? And what does your hesitation reveal about your theology of God when he can't save others with you as his instrument? God pledged his presence to Gideon. And we've seen God's judgment, reminder, pledge. Now I want us to see God's demand. God's demand. Look at verse 17. Following God's pledge, Gideon replied, If I now have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please don't go away until I've come back and brought my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. <laughs> I, love it. I just love what follows. Because until this point, it's clear that all that Gideon has done has been marked by doubt. He was skeptical of the angel's words. He dictated the terms of divine confirmation. He then prepared an offering based on his own notions of propriety. And now, after he's witnessed all this, we read, when Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Aha! Sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So in words reminiscent of Moses, to whom God had declared, you can't see my face, for no one can see me and live. Gideon rightly freaks out, at which point God provides him with assurance of peace. And Gideon responds in humility and worship by building an altar which he appropriately calls the Lord's peace. And then we get to verse 25. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take a second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a, a proper altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather in the daytime. So no sooner has Gideon demonstrated his recognition of Yahweh as the God of peace, then he's, he's instructed to go to war with the false gods being worshipped by his family and his town. Now, it's, it's interesting to note in this short passage, Gideon isn't poor, is he? And, and so, despite that impoverishment described earlier, there were clearly Israelites with much, Gideon being one of them, as he's got numerous servants. Additionally, his family's home, serving as the site of the town's cult worship center, it also suggests that he was exaggerating his circumstances to make his excuses to the Lord's request that he go save Israel more plausible. Regardless, the point I believe we cannot miss here, church, is how two altars cannot coexist side by side. The moment that an altar was built to Yahweh in Gideon's home, the altar to Baal and to Asherah had to be abolished. And friends, I believe that this demand placed on Gideon was meant to serve as a paradigm for all of Israel then, but also for us today. God was preparing his people for his deliverance. He cannot and will not coexist. I hate that bumper sticker. He will not 
share his glory with another. When God's people are broken because of sin, he doesn't minimize their sickness by merely treating sin's symptoms. He deals with the cause. And this is how we treat one another in the world of medicine, and it was Jesus' way as well. In Mark 10's account of the rich men who came to Jesus, if you recall, seeking an answer to the question of eternal life, Christ didn't hand that man a decision card and tell him to tick the box that says, follow me, did he? No. Rather, he revealed that rich man's moral transgression of the first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He revealed his transgression, and then he called for him to smash that idol, didn't he? There could be no double-heartedness for that rich man or for Gideon, nor can there be for us. And friends, we can't follow Jesus and be buddies with Baal. We can't attend church on Sunday and then live like the world the rest of the week. No one can serve two masters because you'll either love one and hate the other or vice versa. When we confess our sin and we believe in Jesus, the scriptures say we die to sin. The Bible describes that change in such radical terms as those associated with crucifixion as well as those associated with birth, which is excruciating, I'm told. And, and thus, those who follow Christ are rightly considered being born again, new birth. They, they're no longer alive to sin. They're now dead to sin. And now they're alive to God in Christ Jesus. The life that they now live, they live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for them. And so they can't live like the world any longer. Frightening task? <laughs> you better believe it. Gideon was afraid of the repercussions of his actions, wasn't he? He was so scared that the man went to work at night. Now, I don't think the hour at which he obeyed is significant because the Lord didn't instruct him when to act, only that he was to act. And in the same way, as, as we face former idols and those with whom we've worshipped, it's going to be intimidating. And it might be that you feel the need to destroy those allegiances in the dark, so to speak. Night or day, what matters is that you act. You know, for the eight years that Melinda and I lived in Birmingham, we never did settle on a team. You can do that with football, guys. You can't do that with faith. Our God's salvation is great. Because it is exclusive. There is only one way to the Father. And his name is Jesus. Do you know him? Would you pray with me as we close? Father God, you are the way, truth, and life. Jesus, there is no way that we have life except through you. God, you have given us in your word the light that opens eyes to see the reality of why our lives are broken, why they're impoverished, as we've described, why they don't fulfill, why they, 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 they seem to, to linger and discourage. Father, and that problem is sin. Lord, and we can't blame that sin on anyone else or anything else. It is something that is, that is in us. God, and you came in the person of your son to take that brokenness upon yourself and to heal it 
when you died in our place and then rose again. So that now whoever repents of that sin, confesses it to the one who alone can change and heal it, and then believes in Jesus, you promise God your presence forever. Lord, and we thank you for how your gospel has changed our lives, we who are your people. Father, we are not perfect. We continue to, to struggle, to face fear and uncertainty. But Father, we have been called in light of your great grace to action. Father, we're not to sit back and to passively observe the world. You've called us to go make disciples. Father, this is a command that we act out because you loved us. Lord, we love only because we know love as you have revealed it to us. We don't love to, to garner your love. We love because you've given your love to us. Father, we pray that you this morning would remind us of this reality. Father, and as, as prone as we are to wander, as we leave in the moments that follow, Father, we pray that you would remind us this week that we live for a risen Savior. Father, we can't live like the world and pretend on Sundays. There's no reason for such pretense. Because you know. And you see our hearts. Father, would you convict us where we need to make changes? Father, convict us of that sin and lead us to confess. And then remind us of your presence which enables us to face any obstacle because you have overcome them all. Father, we thank you for this promise that you have given to us in Christ Jesus and secured by the power of your Spirit. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.